0: Romans 1, verses 8 through 15, we are continuing in our verse by verse study of this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Last week, one of the things that we mentioned was that he was writing to a church that he did not personally know. He hadn't encountered them one on one or face to face. This is indicated by later things that, Rome, that uh, Paul says in the book of Romans. But nonetheless, he writes to them as an apostle. He wants to see their lives brought into submission to the faith that they profess. The obedience of faith, that's his goal, as he writes to them. And last week, what we studied was his salutation, or that is his greeting to this church. And here in these verses, we get into his introduction. And this is the regular pattern of the Apostle Paul as he writes letters. If you go through to any of the letters that he writes to the churches, it begins with a salutation, a greeting, and then it flows into an introduction, and then getting into the body of things that Paul wants to touch upon. And so let us turn our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he give us understanding and build us up in Christ through it. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we study the scriptures together, we pray that you would open yourself to us. O Lord, that we would know you, that, Lord, our hearts would be wrapped around your heart, that, Lord, you would build us up in love for Christ and build us up in love for one another. O Lord, that we might be one church, one body, one bride of the bridegroom. O Lord, that we might be prepared for the day of his coming in glory. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us not to be distracted, that, Lord, you would help us to be a people who would submit ourselves to your word, and that, Lord, you would build us up in all things in Christ through it. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. John Donne wrote, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent and a part of the main. And I I think, friends, that it might be well said that Christians are also not an island in and of themselves, nor are churches islands of their own invention, nor of their own rule. There is no Christian who is alone, not uniquely, not genuinely. There is no church which is separated from every other church, a solo congregation just floating along like a raft in the sea of the world. No matter how much we may imagine ourselves to be that sort of thing, if we believe the Scriptures, we are told that simply that is not true. All believing Christians are united by the grace of of Jesus Christ. By that I mean united one to another. All churches are united by a mutual faith in Christ. That is the things that they profess about Him. And you may say, but pastor, churches disagree about doctrine. Yes, don't I know? It is the case. But of the essential things of faith in Jesus Christ, Every true church must be united. There is one Christ. He is not a relative person. He is distinct. And there are truths about him and truths that the church holds. And in saying all of this, it is to say simply that the church is Catholic. And by that I do not mean Roman Catholic in the sense of Roman Catholicism, with the rule of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope himself. I don't mean that at all, but rather to use the word in its own meaning. And that is a word that speaks of the church as a unified whole. A single body of believing Christians who share a mutual faith and who have shared gifts and shared blessings and also shared responsibilities. You see, as the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, he writes to a church that he doesn't know face to face, but he presumes on the reality of their being unified in Christ. It is the Catholicity, the uniting factors of the church that Paul stands upon when he writes his letter, and specifically in these few verses he touches upon three points of Catholicity that are blessings to the individual Christian and to the church broadly. The first of them is the blessing of thanksgiving from verse 8. The blessing of thanksgiving where Christians give thanks for one another. The second is the blessing of prayer in verses 9 and 10 where Christians pray for one another. And as they come before the face of God on the grounds of a heart for one another. And then, thirdly, the blessing of encouraging fellowship. This thing that Paul desires to have with the church in Rome, verses 11 through 15 encouraging fellowship. And so, as we come in our passage of Scripture to verse 8, we've left verses 1 through 7 very naturally. And within it, I want to remind you just once again that Paul was giving a greeting, establishing a handshake, if you will, a first word to them, a, a ground upon which to stand, where he can say this is how we initially relate. I am an apostle. You are a church, a group of Christians called by Christ to be his and to be raised up in him. And Paul said that his mission was to bring about the obedience of faith. And now here in verse 8, as he transitions away from his greeting, he turns to a word of thanksgiving. And this is very normal for Paul. Immediately after greeting the Christians, he launches into what we would call doxology. It's worship, praise to the God of heaven because of the Christians that he's writing to. Thanksgiving, the original word in the manuscript, would be the Eucharisteo. You would know that language from the way we speak sometimes of the Lord's Supper. But a a good grace being given to God, a word, the swelling of the heart toward the God of heaven. So Paul in verse 8, he says this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ For all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. This is a wonderful thing, and I want to encourage you to think upon this, and not just skip over this. I mean, you and I, we have conversations all the time, and you have conversations with friends, and I hope with other Christians, and maybe you even have phone calls, and sometimes it begins, hey brother, how are you? Oh, it's good that you're doing well. I'm so thankful that I get to talk to you today, and then we just move right along in the conversation. I mean, I think we mean it. But whenever Paul says this, there is depth. This verse 8, this word of doxology, this word of worship, there there has things. Uh, there, there are things within it that, that show a deeper grasp on his relationship with them, but also his relationship with with God and so I want to I want to focus on two things that characterize his thanksgiving that he gives in verse 8. And the first of those is the recipient of his thanks. It's his God. I thank my God. And you say, well pastor, of course, you're always pointing out the obvious things. Why do we just have to keep reciting this sort of obvious stuff, doesn't every Christian thank God? I would say, of course, we hope so. But it's the thing that he's thankful for that makes this unique. That's what makes it stand out. Because the thing that he is thankful for is the faith of the Romans. For them and their faith. It's the thing that they profess. It's the thing that occupies their hearts. And does Paul say, I thank you, Roman church? First, I thank you for believing on Christ, for remaining faithful, for pressing on and staying with him and fighting the good fight of faith and persisting. No, that's not what he does. He doesn't glorify them. No, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus, for all of you, because of your faith. He thanks God. And this shows to us what Paul believes regarding faith, and that is who it is that is responsible for the faith of believers. It's as if Paul is publishing to them and to us as we read this so many years later that he believes that God is the author of faith and the perfecter of faith. That it is the work of God in the hearts of Christians that accomplishes faith. Now, this sounds maybe a little bit spiritual to you, and I would like to say it should. Because sometimes you and I can listen to the world around us and we can convince ourselves that faith is simply an act of sanctified rationality. Make any point to me well enough made, logically shown, displayed, and I'll believe it, right? I'll believe it if you can prove it to me. And a lot of Christians think that their faith, their life before the God of heaven is based upon a rational argumentation that they hold to Jesus strictly because of their own handling of the facts of the matter. And what Paul is saying here is that faith is a gift of God, not a work of the will or rationality or minds of men. It is a gift of God, and that's why he thanks God. It's God's work that these Christians believe. It's God's work that their faith is proclaimed. It's God's work, and that's why God is praised. That's where he begins. This is profound Because it means that his relationship to them is based upon the work of God. Not at all upon the work or thoughts or mind or love or lack thereof of fallen, sinful, broken men and women. That makes it something untouchable because it is a thing authored by the hand of God that is a hand that may not be touched nor stopped. This is good news, church. This means my relationship to you, your relationship to me, and moreover, your relationship to the Lord of glory is bound on something greater than you and me. I will mess it up. Won't you? I'll destroy the relationship between me and you, and I certainly will destroy the relationship between me and Jesus Christ. This is His doing let me be profoundly clear that I'm not saying that faith is a thing that simply happens to you. You do believe in faith, but it is a thing that is given and worked in your heart freely by God. That's the first thing. The recipient of His thanks, His God for the faith Of these believers. But the second thing that Paul highlights, and you may well have just passed right over it because a quick reading of the text can do so, it's that Paul highlights that his thanks to God is only through the mediation of Jesus Christ. You say, hang on a second, what are you talking about? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, for all of you. Paul is saying that when I thank God, the only way I may bring thanks to him is because Jesus pleads even my thanksgiving to him. That is deep thought about his own affections and his relationship to God. Within this, Paul is saying to us, That even his happiest spirituality, even his most sincere praise, even this thing that is so beautiful that it can only be had and only pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. Because whenever he's saying this, he is owning a thing about himself that he is a fallen and defiled creature And that the inclination of the thoughts of his heart are sin and sin continually. That even at his best, even at his most pure love, he still has to rely on Jesus. Even in thanking God for his brothers and sisters that he loves and is overwhelmed concerning their faith. And the praise that he gives to God because of it. I need his mediation even To praise him. This is profound. Because Paul begins his letter here, the substance of it, on this leg, this idea of Catholicity, his union with other believers, saying to them and to us that because of them, his relationship to them, he sees God's gracious work more clearly. He's saying to the church at Rome, you help me to see his handiwork and rejoice. And then secondly, he's saying to them, you drive me to my knees to rely on Jesus Christ, even if I would give thanks. Thanks. This benefit of Catholicity. This is the thing that happens within the church. From our church, to another church, to another church, to another church. To all believers united in Jesus Christ. That if we give thanks because of one another, it ought to drive us to the author of our faith. God Himself. And it ought to also press us to cling to Jesus No Christian is an island. You are not independent in your faith. No church is an island. You are united to one another for glorious purposes. Secondly, as we continue in this section of Paul's letter, we see that Paul is moved not only to Thanksgiving, but to prayer. The second blessing of the Catholic relationship of Paul to the Christians in Rome verse 9 for God is my witness he says for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers now if you come to this you say well you know Paul he's a man of big words he sometimes likes to overstate things. Isn't it just a thing of Paul? He has an an incredible vocabulary. Yeah, of course he does. But here in these first few words, he uses the formula of a vow. We say vows in many different ways, usually with the answer of I do, especially regarding the membership of this church specifically. But here Paul says, for God is my witness. He says, In essence, if anybody judge me, let it be the God of heaven who views the depths of the hearts of men. Let him be my witness. Don't skip over this. This is heavy. Because Paul is saying the one from whose eye nothing is hid, he's the one that knows what I do in my heart. And why does he even use this phrase? Well, he uses it to commit to these Christians that, again, don't know him, who've never met him. Maybe they've heard his name. Maybe they've heard his name. He is saying to them, in truth, I have prayed for you. You can believe me under the weight of the authority and judgment of God that I have prayed for you. Even if you don't know me, I've labored for you and about you before the throne of grace. Now let's go back a little bit and simply say, Hey, have you called any Christians this week? And has this been the phrase upon your, on your lips? Hey brother, hey sister, I prayed for you today, right? Did you pray for them? I hope that you did. I trust that you did. I can say at least simply, sometimes in my life, I have found myself saying, Hey brother, I'm praying for you, and then have to say, But did I, or did I just simply think good thoughts about you? Because prayer and thinking about somebody are two entirely different things. Prayer is bringing somebody before the throne of heaven. It is pleading to God for them. Thinking about somebody can be a whole world of other things. I could be thinking about you, how your hair looks or doesn't look. The sound your shoes may make, the awkward noise that your voice sometimes has. Maybe I could be thinking about just how good of cookies that you can make at Christmas time. I could be thinking a lot of things about you, good, bad, and different. Uh, It's a totally different thing to pray for somebody, though. Paul is saying to them in sincerity, I prayed for you, and I pray for you all the time, all the time. My heart has labored for you, even though my eyes have not seen you, and that is profound and whenever Paul characterizes his prayers, the quality of them, he says that his prayers are without ceasing all the time, all the time he 's mentioning them in his prayers, all the time he 's praying for them and Sometimes commentators have looked and asked the question, well, what's Paul praying? And they simply think that from his single request that he lists here that he might come to them, that that's all he's praying. I don't, that doesn't seem to be the case. From the original grammar, nor just from the spiritual common sense of a child of God, that all he's saying is, I really want to go to them, God. I really want to go. I think that Paul is giving word to something that as a pastor I experience and it's the larger part of what I do for you and honestly it's something that you as a church don't see it's the work of prayer and sometimes I'm sure that some of you assume maybe a number of different things one that the pastor doesn't do any work that could be you Uh, another thing you could be assuming is maybe the pastor is nothing but a theologian he reads and just has stacks of books I do I'm guilty right lots of them Maybe you think that the majority of the pastor's work is to debate with other people and be a pugilist or a fighter for Jesus. Or maybe you think that the majority of the pastor's work is to write, write, write and be in his ivory tower of an office. But I want to tell you that the greatest work of the pastor, if he's a good pastor, is the regular ministry of prayer. Where I have your name, your family's name in my mouth, before the throne of heaven and bear you up on my heart to him the thing you don't see the thing you don't hear but the thing that happens and i would say is probably the very most significant aspect of christian ministry and paul is telling them i do this for you you're on my heart I rejoice in the triumphs of your faith that I hear. I mourn over the divisions that I'm aware of. Hurting alongside you when you hurt. Weeping when you fall. Weeping when you run away. Weeping when you turn your back on Christ. As a father would for a child because he loves them. I think that's something of what Paul is saying to them. I pray for you without ceasing before the throne of grace. The second blessing of Catholicity is that Paul has the opportunity to wrap his heart around the people of God and then to bring that heart united with them before the throne of grace to plead for them. Scarcely could be imagined a greater privilege for any Christian than to say the name of a brother or sister to the ears of the Almighty. Most of you don't come to our prayer meeting. We have it. Those of you who do come or have come, you know how it is. It's a whole lot of sameness, isn't it? Because we pray for the same people, we pray for the same sort of things, we, we pray a lot. In fact, it's over an hour of prayer. It's prayer in both languages and sometimes three or four languages. If you come and speak one that you want to pray in, please do it. It's a wonderful expression of Christian faith and it is a highlight, I think, of the life of some in our church. There are some that we pray for regularly in our prayer meeting, and people that you may have never heard, may have never seen, maybe never even heard of, but we've been praying for them for years, even before I came as pastor of this church. Kurt Vetterly and the church in Basel, Switzerland. Sebastian Heck in the church in Heidelberg. Matt Stanghelli in the church in Stavanger, Norway. Phil Gelston, the church in Wiesbaden, Peter Rappingen, Johannes Müller, the church in Berlin, Stefan Müller, the church in Munich, Peter Schild in Frankfurt, Joachim Klautke in Gießen, Andreas Hummel. We can go on and on and on about the people we pray for. John Rakshith Prabhakar in Bangalore, India, a person you've never met. We pray for them because we're united to them in Christ. They are ours, and we, in every way, belong to them. And it is, in every way, the benefit of the union that Christians have to one another by faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to sum up this second benefit of Catholicity and say that because of other churches, we are invited to love the church well in prayer and to sit before the face of God for one another. What greater, what greater blessing could we have than to simply be with the Lord? And it's had because we pray for one another. In verses 11 through 15 we have the third blessing of Catholicity that Paul touches upon in the text here. And it's one that he wants I think Paul would, at this section, not have attained it. In fact, I don't believe that Paul gets to go to the church in Rome until he goes to the church in Rome as a prisoner in chains for Jesus Christ, right? Taken by Roman soldiers to have a trial as a Roman citizen in the city of Rome. But he expands on this request that we mentioned a few moments ago, that Paul, in his prayers, he always is praying, but he's praying not just in any way, but with a specific prayer request that he wants to tell them about, that he might visit them. And then in verse 11, he expresses why. He says that he wants to go to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Now, I know that some of the brothers in the church make it a regular practice either to call Christians or other churches or to visit them. Praise God. Praise God that you do that. Praise God that you go and you seek out other brothers and you try to encourage them and you receive encouragement from them. That's exactly what we're talking about. I had the benefit just a couple of months ago of getting to hop on a plane and fly to krakow poland of all places and to be in this tiny little church 20 people to serve communion to god's people who spoke in a language that i doubt this side of heaven i will ever have any remote understanding of and it was encouraging to me and their testimony is that it was encouraging to them Whenever Paul speaks of this idea, this desire that he would go and be with them, it's not simply that he's a tourist. He's, he's not just there because he wants to see the city of Rome as a citizen of the Roman Empire. You and I, I think if we're honest, we'd all have to say, yeah, I'd love to see ancient Rome. What a great wonder of the world that would be, right? But Paul's not talking about spiritual tourism. He's talking about time amongst Christians. Some people try to interpret verse 11 into some strange, mystical, ecstatic sense. This impartation of a spiritual gift into this idea of some ancient bishopric. All this made up stuff. But Paul gives you an expression of what he means in this. And in verse 12, he explains that this means mutual encouragement. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Mutual encouragement by each other's faith. By their faith, to him, by his faith, to them. And he wants to preach, verse 15, he tells them, I want to preach to encourage you because that's his gift. And he knows that that can encourage these Christians. This encouragement that happens through fellowship, again, let me say to you, no Christian is an island and no church is an island. It is a necessary aspect of belonging to Christ that we receive and give encouragement to one another by personal fellowship and engagement. And if anything has taught us the depth of this in the past couple of years, it is that Zoom meetings are no substitute for face-to-face engagement and hugs and handshakes and cups of coffee and words of affirmation and words of challenge. Hasn't it? Those of you who have been with us through 2020 and 2021, the handful of you, You know just how deep and depressing it goes when we can't meet and how wonderfully high it goes when we're together. And this is what Paul's touching upon. He is saying so loudly that he desires a meaningful relationship with them based upon a common profession of faith. See, I want to touch upon that for just a second. I don't have lots of time, but I want to say this. Sometimes people believe that you come together to establish relationships even in spite of your differences. And what Paul is saying is that he wants a relationship gathered round about their shared agreements and convictions in Jesus. A relationship that is bound on propositions and truth and on the person of Christ and the hope of His blood and the ultimate destiny of the church. He's saying, I want that relationship that speaks the language of the kingdom of heaven. My faith to you, your faith to me, an encouraging fellowship that honors and glorifies Jesus Christ. Don't neglect one another, church. That's the big message. In all of this, don't neglect one another in this church and don't neglect churches outside of us with whom we are united. Pursue them. Pursue one another because Christ intends to bless us through one another because we are in union with one another and with him. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the family and the household of faith. We thank you that Christ and Christ alone is the head of it. Oh Lord, that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And that we are members of his body a finger, an ear, a nose, an eye, a kneecap, whatever it may be, O Lord, that we are together intended to be a people who experience your love together. Lord, bless our church to love other churches and to love one another in the pew. Challenge us, O Lord, to these things. And Lord, we pray that you would bless us Oh Lord, with the same kind of blessings that we've just studied about in this ancient letter of this humble man, Paul of Tarsus, called by Christ. Oh Father in heaven, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.